So this morning as we work our way, continue to work our way through the book of Mark, uh, if you'll look with me, Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 30, it says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. I want to remind you of the context of where we are immediately. Uh, We have just seen as Jesus is proclaiming to the people that the kingdom of God will come in power. Uh, He states that there will be those among them who will see the kingdom of God come in power. Jesus takes John, uh, James, and Peter up with him to a mountain. And on that mountain, Jesus is transfigured. He is displayed in full power. The kingdom, Christ, the king of the kingdom, is put before their eyes in an overwhelming way. And Peter, as observing, we saw Peter puts his foot in his mouth a little bit and he's trying to figure out what's going on. He doesn't quite understand what's happening. And God cries out from a cloud and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Peter, James, John, Jesus come down the mountain and they come down to a crowd. A crowd gathered around the disciples, arguing with the scribes, debating over something. And in the midst of that crowd is a man with his son who is possessed by a demon. And wants his son to be cured, has heard that Jesus is casting out demons uh, and has come to the disciples of Jesus looking for that to be done. And the disciples could not. And as Christ comes down to the crowd, he sees what's happening. He opens the discussion about what's going on. He communicates in compassion with the man. He heals the child. The man cries out that he is seeking to believe, but he needs help in his unbelief. And then as the crowd presses in, the commotion is coming bigger and bigger. In an act of compassion and care, And also to move quickly, Jesus heals the boy. He appears to be dead. Jesus takes him by the hand, raises him up, and quickly moves on. And then we come to verse 30. It says, They went from there, and they passed through Galilee, and did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples and saying to them. We see throughout the book of Mark, Jesus is a teacher. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And while he is seeking and saving that which is lost, he is teaching them. We see it throughout from the beginning of the book of Mark. I put in your handout context, you could look at all these passages. And these passages are not the red letters in some of your Bibles. Jesus is actual teaching. They are statements of Jesus that he is there to teach that he came to teach what he's doing. And he sees the crowd. We saw in 6.30, as the feeding of the 5,000, why does Jesus stop to feed them? Well, it says he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And so he taught. He goes to the synagogue and teaches. We see even in the book of Mark, toward the end where we are not yet, when they come to take Christ, he asks them, have you come out against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. It says day after day, as was his practice, he taught them. 
Jesus is a teacher. Right, right in the transfiguration, we have the declaration, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Declares that they need to hear what He says. It is essential that we listen to Christ. And as it was His regular pattern of ministry to teach, we need to recognize that we are like those sheep in need of a shepherd. Praise God, not like those sheep without a shepherd, with a shepherd. He continued to teach. Being arrested, he made clear. He taught daily. Again and again, he's teaching. And here, we see him teaching still, and we see something significant about his teaching. Jesus avoids the crowds to teach the called. As we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, I'm trying to keep a frame of reference for you as we slowly move through what is a narrative, right? It would be great for you to sit and just read through Mark. It wouldn't take long. You would spend more time watching many movies that come out recently than it would take you to just sit and read through the whole book of Mark. And you would see the full narrative of Mark play out. The history which Mark recorded to display the gospel. And as you look at that, and our minds kind of thinking of characters and such things, and history, those participants of it, we see clearly this is the gospel of Jesus. It is about him. It's heralding news of him. And with Jesus, we see the disciples, or the called, who are with him. We see the crowds, the spectacle of who he is draws crowds, and we see crowds coming to him, and we see critics those who don't like and don't want to hear what Jesus is saying uh, and would rather have him put to death than to have him keep speaking and keep doing what he's doing. But as we look at Mark 9, we see something we have seen previously, but particularly in Mark 9. It says, as they went out from there, as they're leaving the crowd, they're passing through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. He did not want a crowd to follow him. He was not looking to gather a crowd. He was looking to teach his disciples. He is looking to make the word known to them. Even when we saw in Mark, as I mentioned in Mark 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, if you remember the context of Mark 6, Jesus is on his way to get away with his disciples. They had just returned from teaching and casting out demons and proclaiming the name of Jesus. They return and Jesus says, I'm going to take them away. They're hangry, if you remember that point in the narrative. Uh, They don't really want to be doing this. Uh, They're like, Jesus, what's going on? we got to go. We can't feed all these people. And Jesus comforts them that in God's providence, he will provide. I have marveled frequently over the last few months after teaching that, of Jesus' trust in the providence of God. As Jesus is trying to get away with his disciples, his plan is interrupted by a crowd of 5,000 people. And in God's providence, as that crowd approaches, Jesus sees the crowd and says, what they need is a teacher. They are like sheep without a shepherd. They need to be taught. They need to know who to follow. They need to know the purpose. They need to not just be a crowd, but the called. And so he stops in providence, though his plan was to teach his disciples, to teach the crowd. 
And then he shows in compassion that he can sustain and provide in trusting the providence of God. Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, now, I, now what am I supposed to do? No, in his deity, his care, his kindness, his compassion is reflected in his dependence upon the Spirit to feed the 5,000. And he creates food, he multiplies it, and feeds the 5,000. He stops in the providence of God to teach them. But you can see as we continue on through Mark, it is the goal of Jesus, it is the plan of Jesus, and often the purpose of Jesus. He wants to teach his disciples. I think we often think of Jesus as kind of traveling from town to town, trying to get to town and stir a crowd. Like he gets to the town, he sends his disciples out, you guys go make a crowd. I think we probably think that more from some bad movies and some televangelists and people whose ministry is based on them trying to stir up a crowd to get their attention. Where what we see in Jesus is he regularly and consistently is trying to not be in the crowd. He is trying to remove himself from the crowd. He's trying to get away from the crowd. He sees that the crowd would make me king and I didn't come here to be crowned on earth. I came here to die for the sins of my people. He retreats from the crowd to teach his disciples. Jesus had a clear plan and purpose as he came to earth. He had a mission, and his mission was not to stir a crowd. It was to redeem his people. And in doing so, he had his disciples who would teach and who would know and who would need to understand. And so Jesus avoids the crowd to teach the called. He's uninterested with drawing a crowd of earth. He wants to teach the called. At times I think it's helpful for us to slow down and think about these things. This is not in the text, but I think it's good application for us to question what is our motive? What is our mission? What is our ministry? Are we seeking to merely draw a crowd? Or are we seeking to teach the truth and trusting God in the providence of crowds or just the cult to continue to teach the truth? Are we purposed in such a way that the truth is a priority, that should God bring about the crowd, There are the called to teach the truth. Jesus prioritizes teaching his men because he knows his men need to know this truth. They need to be aware. And what's really interesting here is Jesus continues to teach them what they need to be aware of, despite the fact that they don't understand it. Right? Again and again, Jesus is teaching this same truth, that he will suffer at the hands of men, that he will be taken, and he will die, and he will rise again. And in Mark, every time we're seeing this, it says, and the disciples didn't get it. And what does Jesus do? Teaches it again. I'm saying it again. I'm doing it again. And it's, I'm not giving you practical educational advice of, oh, you got to keep teaching repetitive for them to learn it. They won't understand it. But he is continually putting it in their mind again and again and again. Why? Well, one reason 
is because it's the truth. Jesus is not so concerned with what they want to hear. Jesus is aware of what they need to hear. What is the truth? This truth is above all truths of importance. His people need to be taught the truth. As a church, we we hold to this. Teaching is a priority of the church. Teaching is a necessary priority above all else in the church. It does not mean that other things aren't called to happen. It doesn't mean that other things aren't important. But teaching is a priority. In the matters of church government, the qualifications of men are two things. Elders are character qualified, and they're qualified in that they are able to teach. They need to be men of character, men whose teaching does not uh, cause their, or rather men whose character does not cause their teaching to be discredited. They need to be men of character, but they need to be men who can teach. We see it in Titus 1.9. An elder must hold fast, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, clear truth, and to rebuke those who contradict. And, And you might think, well, that's why Jake's excited about this, right? Jake's the teacher. He's taking the opportunity to make a case that he's needed. He doesn't want to lose his job. It could be a very cynical way to look at it. I hope that most of you know me. I I didn't choose this job because of the financial benefits. I chose it for the retirement. Because when I die, I, like you, will receive a crown of glory with Christ. And I will throw that crown right back and say, that is yours. Thank you. So I don't teach on teaching because I'm scared I'm going to lose my job. I didn't take my job for the benefits now. I take great joy in it, but I also think its intention is this. Same as Daniel's job, which he does unpaid by the church, and Danny's job. And many of you who take up the same job, because it's not just a priority for elders, it's a priority for Christians. We see in 2 Timothy 2.1, it says, You then, my child, be strengthened, speaking to Timothy by Paul, be strengthened in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Our priority in teaching is because the church needs to know the truth. And we are called to not just teach the church, but we are to find faithful men and like Christ to take those men and to teach them that they might be able to teach others. And you might think, okay, all right, so now Jake's not just trying to protect his job, but he's a patriarchal chauvinist and he's trying to land that. I'm being very cynical for you this morning, and you're not a cynical people. I don't know why I'm giving you all these cynical ideas. I'm just going to stop that. No, women are called to teach. And, and in the statements to women, it is not only that they are called to teach, but that they must teach in such a way and live in such a way that it does not revile the teaching of God that their lives must reflect, similar to elders. They must be men who are of character so that their teaching, the truth, is not discounted. Titus 2, verses 3 through 5 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, 
not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be reviled. Even more extreme, we see Paul's instruction to slaves, and he says, slaves must obey their masters and honor them. The lowest of ancient society, there is no lower, no greater evil of the actions of men in showing disparity between people than to make someone a slave. And yet, Christ's words are not end all these institutions of word of the world. It is when you are at the lowest place on earth. He takes the opportunity to describe when you are the lowest, you ought to live in such a way that the teaching is not reviled. How could he do such a thing? How, how could he teach such a thing that from the leaders of the church to the men of the church, to the women of the church, to all of the church, as we talked about this morning, Colossians 3.16, that you would dwell in the word of God richly, that you might teach one another. But how could he go so far to say those who are the greatest of sufferers ought to live in such a way in that suffering that the teaching is not reviled? Because Christ taught the truth. And the truth is that he came to suffer. He does not call anyone to suffer in any way as a high and mighty hand over them, unwilling to participate in their suffering. Even more so, he is not just empathetic toward their suffering, but his suffering actually brings about their cleansing. It actually fixes everything. His suffering is one he did not deserve. There is no place, no state, no understanding, no situation in which he was put here because he deserved it. He put himself here. And not because we deserved him to come, but because he is kind and gracious and faithful and just. And justice must be paid. Sin must be paid for because of his justice. And his solution to your sin was not that you should suffer, but that you would be saved by his suffering. There is no more important truth than the suffering and the risen Christ. No more important teaching for us to proclaim. Because it is not just the teaching that matters. It is not just the teaching that will change people. It is not just that we need good teaching so that we're a community that values teaching so we can surround each other and teach one another so that we're all taught and teaching and hear. Our teaching declares and surrounds and proclaims and rests not in our teaching, in the person of Christ. See, a community alone cannot give us what we need. A crowd alone will not be sufficient. A crowd is not the goal. A crowd can unite, but it cannot cleanse. 
A crowd can accept you, but it, not, it cannot make you acceptable. A crowd can bring you together, and a crowd can bring you unified in voice and song, but it can never purify. The crowd alone is not enough. The teaching alone is not enough. We do not have a hope that is just, I hope so. Romans 5 says we have a hope that is secure because of the promise and the accomplishment of God and the work of the Spirit. It is not merely that we need a good mission and vision statement because that's what makes great organizations. It is not that we have to teach so we can be on the same page. It is not entrepreneurialism. It is not business. It is the Church of Christ. And it is united around Christ. Not our mission and vision, His. It is not just to talk and be united in our talking, but it is to talk of Him. Rather, to speak the truth in love to one another around Christ. Your feeling of acceptance is less important than the reality of your acceptance before God. And the teaching is not what accomplished that. It is the truth of that teaching. And that's what Jesus taught. Again, we see him take his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Jesus continues to teach the truth. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for, the sin, for sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. You need to understand the timeline here. Paul's writing this quite a while after Jesus has already ascended and is with the Father. Jesus is declaring what is going to come about. He's stating this is true. And Paul doesn't say that this happened in accordance with what Jesus told us would happen. He says this happened in accordance with the Scripture. In accordance with Isaiah 52 and 53. In accordance with Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 7. In accordance with the promises of the gospel, Isaiah being the greatest, and why I use it frequently as an example, the declaration of the gospel in the Old Testament by the prophets. As Jesus teaches his disciples, he is not teaching them what he determined was going to happen. He is declaring to them what God has declared would happen from the beginning. That the seed of the woman, the virgin birth, would crush the head of the serpent, Satan and sin in the heart of man. And he would redeem his people. It is of first importance, not because Jesus said it alone while he was on earth, but he has declared it from the beginning and he has made it known and made it true. It remains true to this day, not in the promise to come, but in the promise fulfilled. If your hope is in Christ, if your rest is in Christ, because of His grace and His kindness and His calling, you can rest assured that your sins are paid for. That you don't come to church with us because we find you acceptable. 
Many of you I find unacceptable all the time. It's not my acceptance that you need. It's his. How can we say so united when some of you choose to... I was going to make a lame joke. I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Things that are different than my choices. How can I stay united to me? I want to do it so bad. (laughs) I'm going to have self-control and continue to act in the spirit and not the flesh. Thanks for that affirmation, Carlos. Amen. Let's do that. So, how can we be so united because of the blood of Christ? And Jesus is making clear to his disciples again and again and again. This is what is necessary. The Son of Man will suffer. He will die at the hands of the Romans and the Jews. They will kill him and he will rise again. And it's so sweet. Maybe you don't find it sweet. I do. That again and again and again, Peter goes, gosh, Jesus, why would you say that? Don't say that. And Jesus loves him enough to go, you are not acceptable in front of me. Get behind me, Satan. It's so sweet that again and again and again we hear they did not understand. He stated it and they didn't ask questions because they're so confused. Then he states it again and he says they do not understand what he is saying. Because Jesus is teaching a truth that transcends natural understanding. Verse 32. Jesus is teaching a truth that transcends natural understanding. Look at verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. These are his disciples. These are men who have spent over, I don't remember the exact timeline in my head right now, I should have looked at it this week, over a year and a half, maybe closer to two years with him. And he's talking and they're like, I don't get it. I don't, he keeps saying he's going to die. How are you going to reign if you're going to die? How are you going to save your people if you're going to be dead? It's like they don't hear the resurrection from the dead part. Like they, they stop listening before he ever gets there. Or they hear it and they're just like, that, how's that going to happen? It's almost like their hearts are hardened in such a way that it is a clear and understandable truth. You're not confused this morning and it's not because you're smarter than the disciples. It's because you can hear words in your language and understand what they say. The Son of Man is going to suffer at the hands of men. He is going to be killed. And in three days, he is going to rise from the dead. They hear that and they go, I don't don't get it. You mean you're going to suffer at the hands of men? Yeah, that's what I said. No, that can't be right. You mean you're going to die? Yeah. Mm, he must mean something. He must be thinking of a spiritual death. He must be thinking of humility. You're going to rise from the dead. Yeah, you're going to have victory in you. Yeah, victory in Jesus. You're not talking about like resurrection. And again and again, Jesus displays. He has the power of such things. He raises from the dead. 
He heals. But they don't get it. And you might think, one, why does he keep teaching it if they don't get it? Why doesn't he move on later in the book and hope they get that topic later, right? I know many of you ladies homeschool, many of you men homeschool your children. You're teaching them a topic. Maybe you're in math. You're working through, and you're saying, I just don't understand this. What do you do? Let's just move on. Maybe it's a little above their pay grade since they don't get paid. (laughs) So we'll just move on. And they'll understand it later. Sometime later, they'll be able to understand it. Jesus doesn't treat this as that. He doesn't say, yeah, they'll understand it later. Let's teach them more important things. He continues to tell his disciples, this is what is going to come about. Jesus teaches on other things. As we work our way through Mark, we'll see that Jesus teaches on your relationship to the government. He teaches on marriage. He teaches on how all of those things should be handled. But again and again, he teaches what his disciples continue to not understand and not know. And if you were just to read Mark, you might think like, man, the disciples are dumb. And you might think the point is Jesus can use really dumb people. Praise God, I'm not that dumb. That's not the point. They could not understand this without the grace of God and the work of the Spirit. Remember, Jesus has just explained this to them. He has said that this is done by faith. That if you want this to happen, you have to put your faith in God. You have to be dependent upon Him. He says, if you want to cast out a demon like that, you need to trust and depend on me. This is a matter of faith. In the same story, in the book of Luke, we see after Luke gives detail in a way that Mark doesn't. Luke 9, 43 through 45, he says, And they were all astonished at the majesty of God. They were astonished at what he did with this young boy. But while they were all marveling at everything, what Jesus was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying. And it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Again, in Luke 18, we see Jesus goes again to tell them, he says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. It's getting close. This is going to happen. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But none of them understood these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. It's not that they didn't understand the words. It's not that the disciples were going, what's vlogging? What is he talking about? No, it's they can't accept that this is the truth he's proclaiming. It's not that they were confused about where Jerusalem was. They knew. They didn't have a cell phone where they could go, Siri, take me to Jerusalem. I don't have to know how to get there. No, these men knew what he was talking about. They knew the words. They couldn't accept them. In John, we see why. John 12, 16, he says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. Right? They did not understand these things at first. 
And you might think what comes next is, but eventually their dumb heads came around to it. Right? No. They didn't understand these things at first, but Jesus realized there are varying learning styles, so he started using diagrams and clay. And he took Peter out and said, Peter, let's give you an object lesson. No. It wasn't about their learning style. It wasn't about their ears. It was about their heart and the work of Christ, the work of God, the giving of the Spirit. Let me, just so you know, I'm not making that up. John 12, 16, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. They did not understand that Jesus was proclaiming he was going to do what had been proclaimed. They couldn't make the connection. They couldn't bring from ears to mind to heart. The grace of God is that he makes known the wisdom and the power of God, not just to the ears and the minds of man, but to the heart. I think it's important that you understand this because Jesus was relentless. Jesus proclaimed the clear truth again and again and again to his disciples. For what purpose? Because he was hoping each time that they would get it? No, he knew and he trusted the providence of God that in God's timing, the truth will do its job. By the work of the Spirit, the truth will accomplish its purpose. I, one thing that comforts me often in the providence of God in the beginning of the church plant, I think I was a younger, more zealous man, and I thought, every some of you remember these days, every Sunday I was preaching a whole systematic theology. Here we go, 78 points, one hour and 20 minutes. Just kidding, I don't hold that record, Daniel Nunez does. <laughs> But collectively, all the amount of time I've gone over and the amount of time Daniel's got over, no comparison. Just It's about how you run the statistics. So again and again, I felt like I've got to teach everything I can on every topic. We've got to create a culture. We've got to have, I'd read too many church planning books. And it was a couple verses in Timothy that first year. Where he says, at the proper time. God sent Christ. And I realized he waited thousands of years to do what he promised because he's faithful in his promises. He knows the timing of things. And Timothy closes with another statement and it says, and at the proper time, he will return. When? I don't know. I'm not making charts. I'm not making bets. I'm not picking dates. I know it will be at the proper time. And what do I do between the proper times? Proclaim the proper truth. Proclaim who he is and what he's done. But what if they will not hear us? What if you continue to proclaim to your neighbors and your families and your friends and your children that Jesus died as a first importance for the penalty of sin, that you can be saved. And it was according to the scripture. 
and that he did not stay dead, but after his suffering, three days later, he rose from the dead and declared victory, that God has paid the penalty for the sins of his people. And that you, knowing you are a sinner, must rest your hope fully in him, knowing you can accomplish nothing. There is no ability for you to pay for your sin because you are just a man who has sinned against God. But the perfect sacrifice promised, the glam of God given, who is both 100% man who can die in your place and 100% God who can take the eternal penalty that you would never be able to pay, has come to earth as he promised, and died as he promised, and risen as he promised, and declares his victory over all creation, awaiting the proper time to return. I don't think my friends, my family, who don't love Christ are confused by the words. They just will not accept them. They will not accept them. Why? Because I'm stupid. My arguments aren't good enough. It's probably true, but I don't think that's the reason. I haven't gone through the right training program to make it clear. I don't, I don't know. I, I hear about the new training program every five years uh, that's going to fix all of our problems. Jesus didn't have any of those. Seems like he was all right. Again and again, I want to give you encouragement. Why would you keep declaring the same truth if part of your family, part of your friends, part of the people who hear it say, you're a fool. You are a fool. You want me to believe that some God-man came to earth and died and now all your sins are paid for? You're a fool. And then another part, and maybe they just pick the day, they say, why on earth would you think I need a savior? You think you're better than me? You think when we get to heaven and we all line up, God's going to say, I go to hell? Have you ever heard of Adolf Hitler? Do you not know evil? I watch you. Sure, all your church friends, they, they think you're holy and mighty and righteous, but I know you. And you could just tell them, my friends know me at church too, and they are well aware. It's not that they can't understand what you're saying. It's not that you need to find some more clever way to say it. It's not a sales pitch. It is an ongoing, continual declaration of the truth, dependent upon the Spirit and the power of God. Why would I encourage you in such things? I want you to have the kind of endurance that Christ had, not as Him. You can't. But you can, because you have all the riches of God in Christ, because you have been given the Spirit of God, which causes you to hear the truth of the gospel and not say, that is folly, or that's a lie. You hear the gospel and you say, that is the power of God for salvation. Why do you do so? On the back of your handout, if you look with me, the grace of God in making known His wisdom and the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. For the word of God, the word of the cross, 
the crucifixion of Christ, the death, the atoning payment of Christ. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It is foolish to them. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And you might say, well, of course you want to say that. He gives reason. Why is that? Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart God's promise. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He says, for the believing, the cross is the power of God to salvation. For you who are being saved, you who are saved by God because of the cross, it is the power of God. And he says, why has he accomplished it as such? Because he will destroy the wisdom of man. To the Jew who says, I am righteous enough. Just show me signs to prove that you are God. He says, no, your signs are not the issue. Jesus is a stumbling block to them because they are righteous, quote unquote, in and of themselves. They will not be humbled. They will not be broken over the rock of Christ. They would rather trip over Jesus than bow to him. And the Greek, who had decided they had all wisdom. See, this from the Greeks, from the sophists, that we get the idea of truth and beauty and goodness. And the declaration that there is truth and beauty and goodness. And what the Greeks missed is who is the truth and the beauty and the goodness. What they ignored is that they thought truth, beauty, and goodness is something they discovered through their observations of the world around. Rather than bowing to God. They thought together they had discovered such wisdom and knowledge. It is a danger of us as Western society built on the foundation of Judeo-Christian ethics and Greek history and government that we could be either. 
You can be the moral self-righteous that thinks you don't need Jesus because you know about good moral things. And you look at the world and condemn them. And you think, for someone to tell me I need a savior when I can see the condemnation of earth, you must be a fool. Give me a sign to show me which God to follow, and he can have me on his team. Woe to you. We fall in the same danger of the Greeks. Well, I want you to organize this to my system, to my understanding, to my knowledge. I need you to categorize all these things in how I have stated it. I will not submit to the way in which God has brought this about in history. I I think I stand on a strong culture of wisdom and virtue and knowledge. There is truth and beauty and goodness in the world just for us to see it and to bring up the arts and everything else. Why would I need your God when there is so much truth and goodness and beauty around? You just can't see the goodness of man. Why would you tell me I must be saved? But God, in his grace, crushes the Jew and crushes the Greek because in the crushing of Christ, he has declared true salvation. The Jew lies to himself and tells himself he's righteous enough. The Greek lies to himself and tells himself he's smart and good enough. And they point and poke fun. And we pray. Because no boasting will be in man. It will all be in the Lord. First Corinthians goes on in chapter 2. He says, and, I, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And as I was with you in my weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, Paul says, I didn't create some big crazy program to impress you. I declared in a feeble way, that the only way I could is, Paul, the truth of God, so that the Spirit of God would rest in power in your heart, and what would be true is that God saved you, not my program. He proclaims the testimony of God. He preaches Christ crucified, and he does so in demonstration that the Spirit transforms. 1 Corinthians 2, 6. And so now he goes on to discuss, so what do we do as the church? We teach. We teach one another. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Though not a wisdom of this world or this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret, hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Let me make clear what he's saying there. He's not saying we impart a remaining secret knowledge. He says we impart something that was secret, hidden in the glory of God. That the rulers of this world did not understand. They would not accept. For if they did, they would not have crucified Christ. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. 
These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit of God, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What is Paul saying? He's saying the things which have been declared to them are things declared by the Spirit, and they have recorded and declared the truth. It's what we looked at just a few weeks ago in 2 Peter 1, 21. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but God spoke from the prophets, or God spoke, uh, but men spoke, sorry, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit gave to the apostles the truth in which they declared, the truth in which Jesus declared again and again, and they declared it by the power of the Spirit. It is a mystery and hidden no more. Friend, it is not that your atheist neighbor, who's already lying if they're claiming to be an atheist, can't take up this book and read it. The problem is they will not accept it. Because what is needed is the grace and the Spirit of God. We, like Jesus, need to trust that the truth is the truth. That that which He has revealed must be declared. And we must rest in Him that the Spirit will bring about the work. The Spirit will make it clear. This passage is not saying you have secret, hidden knowledge by the Spirit that your friends can't have. It is saying your friends, your family, the world will not accept it because it is the Spirit who changes what is natural to supernaturally depend and to trust in Him. Romans 16, 25, Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, the glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul prays at the end of Romans that God who is able, God who has strengthened, God who gives power, God who made the mystery revealed that the church would be brought into the promises of Israel, that all the nations would hear, and that the God who had planned this in eternity has done it for what? The obedience of faith. A heart that says, I don't just hear, but I accept. And I place all my hope in that. I pray for our endurance. 
I pray as times get darker that we are not convinced that nuance will serve us better. We are not convinced we must accept things of the world and the truth that we teach. That we will not say there is teaching of the world that will bring about a greater understanding to us of what God has declared. It is the clear and simple truth of the crucified Christ who has risen and stands in victory that saves man. Let us have such endurance, not because we long to be like Jesus, not because he's just a good example, but because he has been crucified and risen and has given the Spirit to us that we can, by his strength, by his power, according to his will, because of his plan, that we can declare and live for his glory. Let me pray for our endurance, then we'll be reminded of the source of our endurance as we participate together in communion. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your faithfulness in all things. I thank you in your teaching. You always know the right thing to teach, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would help our efforts as I and others often feel just a a lack of ability to, to press forward, to go on, to make known what is true. That you would help us to rest in the simple truth of your Son. That all that we teach would point to and declare the crucified Savior who is risen again. I thank you, Lord, that we can trust you in all things. I pray you would remind us of that in your teaching, in songs to your praise, in the reminder of communion and the joy and the friendship and the fellowship, the accountability and the cleansing and the cutting of your body, of believers who together declare salvation in your name. It's in that name we pray. Amen.